Good evening, everybody. I am in no means and in no way Jessica Gosen. Yeah, it's been a rough week, but that's part of the reason why she's not here, sick little ones and all. But I'm here on her behalf as her much, much better half. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just to uh, do the Bible reading. So the, uh, this evening we're reading Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Just make sure I got it right. The triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there with her colt tied by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and that he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered them, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Adam. We'll just play that video now if we can. Thanks. We all have that person in our lives. That neighbour we pass by every day outside our homes. That co-worker we see at the office five days a week. All those friends we catch up with every once in a while. People we wish could know and experience the love of God. How do we share it? Where do we even start? Deep inside, we know that it will cost us something to open up our lives and share our faith. It takes time, vulnerability, sacrifice, the risk of rejection. But this is our call to open our lives and to share Christ with the people close to us. Because it's only through opening your life up that spaces for honest conversations are possible. Spaces where people can truly be themselves and explore the deepest parts of life with people they know and trust. That's why we're running Alpha. It's a course over several weeks where you can invite your friends to explore life's biggest questions over a meal. It's a chance for you to invite that person into an honest conversation about faith because when it's hard to find the moment or the words or the courage, you can simply invite. Alpha, who will you invite? 
Well, obviously, we have a focus on Alpha this year, something that we haven't done for quite some time here at SDBC. So we will be doing Alpha in the second term. We'll also be doing Alpha in the third term. And uh, we desire that you guys invite your friends. And I know that brings great fear and trepidation to many, many people. But I want to encourage you because uh, we as pastors and leaders of SDBC have just come off the back of an incredible convention down uh, at the Gold Coast at SeaWorld. And... Uh, all the guest speakers, it was like it was rehearsed. Um, they just had something to say about Alpha, each and every one of them. And there's so many accounts, especially about people who had never spoken to pe their friends about Jesus before, who suddenly had the courage to just invite them to come to Alpha. And so many of those that they invited came to Alpha. So many of them made commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. And so we want to encourage you guys to be on your front foot about proclaiming the gospel, about telling others about Jesus, about being a witness for him. But we want an easy in for you. We want you to be able to do something that's going to have a huge impact but isn't so scary for you. And so Alpha's it. So uh, on the table, there's just a few of these invitations left. Um, take these. It's got a QR code on it. That allows you to register, allows your friends to register. Uh, if you don't get one of these, please contact the office. We will be printing some more and making them available. But there's also um, a link available in the bulletin. And uh, you can actually get onto that link and register your friends as well. We are praying and believing that there'll be 100 people come to Alpha here at SDBC. And we trust that you'll want to be a part of that and be involved. Uh, our youth will also be doing Alpha on Friday nights and are very excited about that as well. So please be a part of that. Uh, remember our leaves too. We still have leaves up the back there. Write your friends, colleagues, family name on that. Stick it to our tree. And please, as you walk past, just pray in front of that tree, asking that God will soften hearts, asking that God will bring people into this place to hear the gospel message. And I'm sure lives will be changed as a result. Well, obviously, uh, we're moving into um, this passage of Scripture, which is called the Triumphal Entry. And uh, I want to start tonight's message from reading a little bit before the passage that we had tonight. And so I'm going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 20, and uh, I'll be reading verses 29 to 34. And I'd really like you to listen to what occurs here. And as they went out of Jericho, this is Jesus and his disciples, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. As Jesus is leaving Jericho, headed to Jerusalem, about 24 k's away from Jericho. We have this little account. And we can ask, why, why did the crowds rebuke these men? Perhaps they didn't want these guys calling out. Perhaps they didn't want Jesus being distracted from his purpose. Perhaps they just wanted Jesus to continue on his journey to Jerusalem without this happening. Perhaps they just didn't think these blind beggars um, should be troubling someone like Jesus. Or perhaps it was because they called Jesus the son of David. They didn't do it once. In fact, we are told they cried out all the more. So we don't know how many times they cried this out. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And in our day and age, we might just go, yes, yeah, so what? 
son of David. It's a name. But son of David is reserved for only the promised Messiah. It's a name given only to him. And we don't know what these blind men have heard about Jesus. We don't know what they know. But right here in this passage, as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, they're declaring with their words that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And this isn't the first time that this has happened. It's happened in other passages of Scripture as well. But when it happened in the other passage of Scripture, Jesus asked them to be quiet, not to tell anyone, to keep it to themselves. This is the first time that Jesus has allowed it to be said. And it seems that he now embraces this kingly title, which is rightly his. And so he's making a statement from that point on and through the passage that we will examine this evening. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you again for the power of your word. I want to thank you that it transforms lives. I want to thank you, Lord, for last week and Graham coming and the two people that gave their life to Christ and the 60, 70, 80 who recommitted, Lord. Such a brilliant response. And Lord, we desire to know you more. We desire to draw closer to you. So Father, help me not to be a hindrance to that. Allow people to engage with you. And draw them to you tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure if you've noticed as you've read through the Gospels, but in a lot of ways, they're very light on detail. You know, they cover this incredible event of Jesus' life. And, you know, there's not a lot of detail all the way through uh, all of the Gospels. And we have the incredible life and ministry of Jesus reduced to a maximum of 28 short chapters in Matthew. And it's much less in the other Gospels. But what we do find is when we look at Matthew, and we see that 29% of the gospel record of Matthew, eight chapters in total are on Jesus' final week on earth. If we go to Luke, it's 25%. If we go to Mark, it's 38%. And John has 48% committed to the last week of Jesus' life and his resurrection. And it is this one final climatic week that Jesus concludes the primary purpose of his earthly ministry the redemption of humanity. That's what he came for. He did plenty of other things, but his purpose was to redeem mankind. On Palm Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem triumphantly. Five days later, he'll be buried. By human standards, I don't think you'd find a greater failure. But we know otherwise. And as we look at this passage, I want us to think about three people or groups. I want to examine those groups. And I simply want to ask, what is Jesus doing? What is the disciples doing? What is the crowd doing? And what does that mean for us? How should we engage with what's before us? So first and foremost, what is Jesus doing? And Pastor Darrell this morning called his message, take a deep breath. Jesus, the promised king, orchestrates his annunciation. Whew, that's, 
A big title for a message, isn't it? It's quite a mouthful. But it's exactly what is going on. We know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And it's from this point forward that he accepts the title as Son of David, which previously, as I said, people have been been told to keep quiet about. And so he enunciates or proclaims something clearly. And Jesus does this by orchestrating everything that occurs in this final week. And we know from Matthew 21, 17, that Jesus was staying in Bethany. And it's most likely that he's staying with Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And that was his habit when he came to this area. He would go and stay with them. He obviously dearly loved those three and would spend quite a bit of time with them. And then uh, Bethphage, as it says here, uh, is within spitting distance of Bethany. You can literally see it from Bethany. It's a very, very close city. Sorry, very close village. And it's to Bethphage that Jesus sends the disciples to get the colt and the donkey that he's actually going to ride the colt uh, into Jerusalem on. And he tells his disciples, if anyone asks, tell them that the Lord has need of them and they will send it at once. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus expected the owners to ask. He preempted that. He knew it was going to happen. And we don't have it in this account, but in Mark and Luke, um, they are asked why they're untying the donkey. And they respond by, um, and the disciples respond as they've been told to, and they're allowed to take the donkey and the colt, as we are aware. Why would they do that? Historically, I used to think that Holy Spirit came upon those men or that an angel went and spoke to them and said, you've got to let Jesus do this. But then I started thinking about where they actually were. And and so they're at Bethany and Bethphage, and this is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, if someone was raised from the dead in this area, do you think we'd all know about it? I think we would. And when we saw that the guy we knew was dead is suddenly alive again, we could not help but say that this was a great miracle. And so these people in these two villages know that Jesus has done a great and mighty work. So when he asks for the use of the donkey, they'll say, hey, what are you doing? They're like, hey, the Lord, Jesus, has need of these. No worries, man, just take them. Everyone knew who Jesus was. Everyone knew in that town what he'd actually done. And so for them, there was no issues in allowing them to take it. And Jesus had now allowed the clear declaration of him as the son of David. And now he rides the colt, a young donkey that had never been ridden before. And I want you to think about that. Has anyone ridden horses or anything like that? I rode an unbroken horse once. I used to think I was a pretty good rider. I learned very quickly that I wasn't. But I did come off three times and got back on four times. So that says something. But the thing is, this colt has never been ridden before. This colt has never had anything on its back before. And the donkey was taken to come alongside the colt because that settles the colt down. It allows it to know where to go. But as soon as Jesus got on the back of this this colt, it should have been skittish. It should have been jumping around all over the place. It should have been trying to remove him. But none of that happened because Jesus orchestrated all of this. He was in control of everything that was going on. 
Not only did he know where that colt and donkey would be because he knew that area very, very well, but he knew the owners were going to be okay in him using it and he knew that he'd be able to keep this colt calm. He knew it was going to serve the purpose that he required. But it had happened, all of this, in order that Zechariah 9.9 would be fulfilled. Jesus is openly allowing people to call him the son of David. And his actions in writing this cult make it obvious that he's declaring that he is the promised Messiah. He is the righteous one who offers salvation. And he comes humbly on a donkey. It's interesting because the expectation of this promised Messiah is that he will come boldly and he'll wage war on the Romans. And so the expectation is that he'll come in on a white horse, he'll have spears, he'll have swords, he'll have shields, he'll have an army. Or if he's not doing that, he'll be mounted in a chariot, a war chariot, which will be able to fight against the Romans and cast them out of Jerusalem. But he comes in on a donkey. And not even that, the cult of a donkey. His declaration is not about military conquest. He comes in peace. He's committed to bringing reconciliation. And yet it's all so incredibly confronting. If you read on a little bit further, you'll see, and I'm sure most of you know, he enters the temple, he turns over the tables of the money changers, he heals the blind, the lame, and so many other things, and then... This happens. These guys are triggered. They're not happy at all. There are children crying out, shouting, if you will. And what were the children doing? They were mimicking what their parents had done. They heard their parents cry out about Jesus being the son of David. So these kids are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And these religious leaders confront Jesus. Do you hear what they're saying? You should correct this. You should stop them. These kids shouldn't say this. And the implication is that it's wrong. And Jesus, Jesus should stop them. But it's like Jesus basically says, yeah, I hear them. It's what scripture says. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And in a way, saying it's fitting and it's right. And it stirred these religious leaders and not in a good way. Just like it stirred the whole city when Jesus entered. Do you remember back in Matthew 2 1, uh, 2 3, sorry, uh, King Herod hears that there's a king that's been born. And he. And all of Jerusalem was stirred. It was a shaking not unlike an earthquake. They were gravely concerned. They didn't know how to deal with it. And we can, when we consider history and the impact that Jesus has had on our history, it's very clear that indeed our whole world was shaken and continues to be so. But in the midst of this, what are the disciples doing? I can't begin to imagine 
what this time would have been like for the disciples. They've been waiting for Jesus to step up. They'd seen these incredible miracles that he'd done in private. They'd heard so much more about Jesus' expectations for the future and those types of things. And although they didn't fully understand uh, who he was and what he was going to do, their desire and expectation was that he would be this Messiah that would overthrow the Romans. And finally, he's made that declaration. But it wasn't going the way they thought. What can we be sure about these disciples? I think first and foremost, they were obedient. They did what they were told to do. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. This is talking about the donkey. And I think I've mentioned this before. Could you imagine if I said, hey, Adam, I want you to go into the city and when you get to the Queen Street, there's going to be this limousine there. I just want you to grab that limousine and bring it back, okay? If anyone asks you, just tell them Charlie needs it. Of course, Adam's going to be a fool if he does that on Charlie's word. But, you know, could you imagine what it was like for these disciples? This is what you're going to do. And really, theft in those days was a pretty serious crime. And yet they go. They're obedient to what Jesus has told them to do. And it's incredible because Jesus doesn't only tell them to do it, he tells them exactly where to go. You go to this place, you will find a donkey and beside it you'll find its colt. I just want you to grab them and bring them back. They didn't have to come up with a creative story as to why they needed the donkeys, why they were taking them. They just needed to say exactly what Jesus had told them to do. They didn't have to convince them. The disciples were also part of the crowd. Travelling with Jesus from Bethphage to Jerusalem. And we're not told what the disciples were thinking and feeling, but I think if we were amongst them, we would see that they're thrilled that Jesus is finally making this step. But then I think in the midst of that, there'd also be confusion because he's on a donkey. That's not what they expected. So I think in the midst of it, they would have been thrilled. But they also would have been terrified about what this means. Because Jesus will either triumph or he'll be crushed. There is no other option. So what are the crowds doing? I love looking at the crowds. I think it's very beneficial when you're reading scripture sometimes to ask, what is the crowd doing? And who's part of that crowd? And so it gets a bit interesting here. So the crowd is first mentioned in verse 8. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road as well. And perhaps we don't see this as the powerful statement that it is because this initial crowd is not from Jerusalem. These are people who have gathered and travelled with Jesus from Bethany and Bethphage. And there's another group with them as well. And this is an interesting group to be amongst them. And we know that there are many Jews who came out to Jesus and were following him, not just because of Jesus, but also because of Lazarus. They'd heard that Lazarus had been risen from the dead and now they could lay eyes on this man and speak to him. And so there's many of those who were of the Jewish tradition and faith who'd now stepped away from that and were following Jesus. They couldn't deny the obvious miracle that was clearly walking backwards and forwards in front of them and talking to them. And this group, together with, I believe, the vast majority of Bethany and Bethphage, 
form this first crowd and they're laying their cloaks on the road. It's an act of submission to Jesus as king. And they're waving palm branches and laying them down as well. And that's the symbol of victory. And all the while they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they cry out Hosanna, they're literally saying, save now. Oh, save, save now. That's the literal translation of Hosanna. And the son of David is the name given to the promised Messiah. And as we said before, they enter Jerusalem. And this is quite a large crowd now going with and before Jesus. And they're continuing to cry out this Hosanna to the son of David. And those who've been a part of it hear the cries of the promised Messiah. Sorry, those who haven't been a part of it, hear the cries of the promised Messiah. And you can imagine them standing on the fringe trying to push through and they're going, who is this? Who is it they're talking about? It's interesting that the answer they're given is this. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What have they said about Nazareth previously? Even some of Jesus' disciples said it. Yeah, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So already they're taking this down a peg or two. The people are crying out, son of David, son of David, basically Messiah. And then they're saying, no, no, this is the troublemaker from Nazareth. That's who's in the middle of this bunch. He's just stirring up trouble again. And of course, we have the privilege of reading this side of the history. We know that there was a great expectation and anticipation around the time of Jesus. But again, it'll only be those five days when their cries of Hosanna, son of David, will change to crucify him. Jesus is going to disappoint them. He's not going to be what they expected. He's not going to be what they wanted. And his triumph is not over any ruling authority or government, which is what they expected and what they wanted. His triumph was over sin and its consequences. And his victory could only be achieved in his death. Hosanna, save us. If only they understood. Pastor Darrell and I crossed over in our research a little bit and we both listened to Tim Keller and Jesus has declared himself the promised Messiah and in so doing the time has come to either crown him or kill him. That's the Tim Keller line. But it's so very, very true. And in reality, is it any different for us today? What does all this mean? I believe each and every one of us are made and called to make this decision each and every day. We either crown him as our Lord, as our King, because if we don't, we kill him. There's no in-between. When he is King, when we call him King, there's a reasonable response to him, and we should all respond like this. I want you to think about the disciples in this account. There was all this stuff going on and yet they still obeyed Jesus. They did what he called him to do. 
And as crazy it was for them to go and get those donkeys, they did it anyway because they were being obedient to him. And God sometimes calls us to do crazy things, things we don't understand. Pastor Darrell shared this story, which I can't improve on, so I'm going to tell you it as well. And this teenager, this young girl, was in this car with her parents on a trip. And they pulled up at a service station. Her parents were pumping fuel and using the facilities and things like that. And she believed God said to her, I want you to go into this shop. I want you to do a handstand in front of the fridge. And she's like, what? It can't be God. That is just insane. And so she sort of basically said, well, God, if this is you, you need to make it clear. A little bit later, she believed God said to her, you need to go into this shop and I want you to do a handstand in front of the fridge. It happened a few times. The girl eventually goes, got to do it. So she goes into the shop. She does a handstand in front of the fridge. Nothing happened. She goes to walk out. The guy at the counter says, why did you do that? And so she explains the whole thing to him. She didn't hold anything back. And the guy says, I'm so frustrated with my life. I was going to kill myself tonight. I said, God, if you're real, let someone come in and do a handstand. Because he was making it impossible, wasn't he? Who's going to go into a shop and do a handstand? And this girl, because she was obedient... Save this man's life. God calls us to do crazy things sometimes. And if we do them, great things happen. We need to be obedient. Think about the guys with the colt and the donkey. Pretty valuable possessions in that day and age. These are guys who knew about Jesus. That's my take on it anyway. I believe they knew who Jesus was. And so they hold what they have loosely in their hands, things that they've been blessed with. And if God, if the Lord calls for them, they're willing to release them. I want you to think about everything you own, everything. If God calls upon you as a believer to release that for his use and purpose, would you let it go? I don't need you to respond. I want you to think about everything. If you have one possession in your life or more, one or more, that you would find very difficult to release, that's become a God to you. And you've got to let it go. You've got to be willing to give it up for God. You've got to trust that his plans and purposes are better and greater than yours. When these guys heard that Jesus had a need, they let it go. And guys, that's our finances, that's our car, that's our home, so many other things. I want, to think, I want you to think about the crowd that was around Jesus. They had an expectation of what Messiah should be like, what he should do for them. And I'm sure when many of them saw that Jesus was not going to live up to their expectations, they switched sides and they become part of the crew later in the week who were crying out for him to be crucified. Jesus was not what they expected. <clears throat> Are we that far removed? So many of us want a God of convenience, 
a God that we can lean upon and depend upon when it suits us. But when his word challenges us to do things that we don't want to do, when his word challenges us to not be in the relationships we shouldn't be in, then we decide we're not going to obey that bit. We're not going to listen to God in that bit. And so we have a God of convenience. He's not really king of our life. He's not king of all. He's not king at all. Jesus is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. So many think we can sit on the fence. So many think they can take the middle ground. But that's a man-made construct. There is nothing even remotely close to that in Scripture. Not even close. In fact, Scripture is exactly the opposite. Just as there was this stirring in Jerusalem, I actually believe God has started a stirring here at SDBC. I believe he is doing great and mighty things. I believe he is calling each and every one of us, me, the pastors and leadership included, to a greater commitment to him. And if we haven't crowned him, if we haven't made him Lord, if we haven't made him king of all of our lives, then we've killed him. We failed to be obedient to him and his call on our lives. And there's many of us who've had this gospel fire in our lives, just this burning desire for people to know Jesus and for us to be able to proclaim that word to so many. And that fire which once burned bright has suddenly grown dim. And we're in a position now where I believe God's trying to fan that small ember back into a raging inferno again. Jesus wants you back. He wants the very best for you. He wants you to be that bright light for him once more. Do you believe you can do it? Yeah, I've got three people who think God can do it. That's awesome. I've wasted my time here. God calls us to return to his first love. Yeah? Think about this. These are hard words, but this is what God says. If we go over to Revelation, we look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2 verses 1 to 5. Listen to what is said here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostle and are not and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Listen. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come. And I'll remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. The church of Ephesus was a powerhouse. It had been pastored by Paul and Apollos and Timothy and John. And they were hugely influential in what is now modern day Turkey. 
And yet here we have them being called to return to their first love. A love that they had forgotten. The church is still working hard. The church is still doing things, but they've lost their passion for Jesus. The work they did was no longer in response to what Jesus had done for them. They weren't motivated to move by his love anymore. And if they don't correct it, Jesus is going to remove their lampstand. Do you understand the significance of that? Jesus' light is no longer going to shine in that place. What do you think that means? God doesn't want us, and didn't want the church of Ephesus, to be in a no man's land for our lives. He wants you to know his forgiveness. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to know his presence. But it demands to be Lord. You need to crown him king or kill him. There's no other option. If you crown him, it's not a burden. It's a delight. It results in a hope and joy which cannot be found anywhere else. And the choice is yours. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, I pray that we will be a people who don't exclude any part of it. That we'll be a people who are open to hearing from you. And that we'll respond to you, Lord. That we'll have a desire to move ever closer to you. And so, Father, I pray for every person who's hearing my voice that they'll make the decision to crown you. And Lord, it's going to be tough. It's not going to be easy. There's so many things that have their hooks in us. But with your help, by the power and strength of Holy Spirit, you'll do that journey with us and we will overcome. You've promised that in your word. So Father, for every person here, I pray by power of Holy Spirit, you'll keep ministering to them and that they'll take the steps they need to take in order to draw, draw closer to you and to crown you as king of their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, uh, I have some questions up here if you'd like to sit and um, go through those this evening or perhaps you'd like to take them home. I'd like you to ponder on those. I don't know. I'll throw them over this side, hey, seeing we've got a bit of stuff around the place. So do that. I believe there is cold chocolates tonight. So uh, feel free to get into those. Now for this week, guys, I just trust the Lord will bless you. I trust that his face will shine upon you. I trust he'll make his word alive to you. And they'll be more and more aware of his power and presence with you each and every day. God bless. If you need prayer, please come forward. Thank you.